Welcome everybody to the gathering. We're grateful that you're here tonight. If you would, make sure you're sitting at a table with some other people, because we're going to be doing a little bit of table talk tonight. Let's give it up one more time for the worship band. Thank you so much to all the people who prepared the food tonight. That was wonderful as well. We can give it up for the food. How about John Urenga? That was special, wasn't that? And thanks so much to all the people who contribute to this night, who make this night possible. We're grateful for the people who do set up and tear down and kitchen cleanup and kids, and there's so much that goes on on a Wednesday night, and we're grateful for every part of it, and especially we're grateful that you are here tonight to continue to grow and walk in this life of faith with Jesus. We doing all right tonight? Wonderful. Grateful. Hey, have you ever had like a wake-up call? I don't mean like uh, the phone call that you receive from the people at the front desk at a hotel early in the morning. That's not the wake-up call I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the alarm clock that's burning and buzzing in your ear when you're sleeping in heavenly peace. I'm talking about like a wake-up call when you're awake. We often call it by other names, like a close call, or a narrow escape, or a near miss. Wake-up calls, they come in all different shapes and sizes. For some, a wake-up call might look like a low grade on an English test, or a mountainous credit card bill, while for others, a wake-up call might look like a night or a stint in jail, or the death of a loved one. A wake-up call could be something as trivial as a word of caution or something as moving and serious as a brush with death. But a wake-up call is a time to get right with God. The Old Testament biblical authors have a phrase to describe this wake-up call. It's Yom Adonai, the day of the Lord. Day of the Lord theology is pervasive. It's all throughout the Old Testament, especially when it comes to the prophets. The day of the Lord is a wake-up call for the people of Israel, a moment that's rooted in their past or present experience, like the destruction of Jerusalem, or the period of exile, or it could be a future foreboding event. A day of the Lord can be a day of pitch black, doom and gloom, or it can be a day of blindingly brilliant salvation. For the faithful believer, it is a day of grace and salvation, whereas for the faithless sinner, a day of judgment and destruction. So let's begin by doing a little bit of table talk. Uh, why don't you talk to the people around your table and address the following two questions. Have you ever experienced a wake-up call? That is, a moment in life that caused you to reconsider, make changes, and turn to God. And then secondly, what was it and how has it caused you to turn to God and live differently? Ready, go. All right, if you're able to stand, we're going to begin by reading tonight 
our text entirely. We stand here to review the Word of God. This is from Malachi chapter 4. We're going to read the entirety of our passage tonight, verses 1 through 6. It says, Look, the day is coming, burning like an oven. All the arrogant ones and all those doing evil will become straw. The coming day will burn them, says the Lord of heavenly forces, leaving them neither root nor branch. But the sun of righteousness will rise on those revering my name. Healing will be in its wings so that you will go forth and jump about like calves in the stall. You will crush the wicked. They will be like dust beneath the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of heavenly forces. Remember the instruction from Moses, my servant, to whom I gave instruction and rules for all Israel at Horeb. Look, I am sending Elijah, the prophet, to you before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives. Turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. Lord, we come to you tonight and we want to have open hearts, to have open lives, that we would be authentic and genuine people. Maybe people who need a wake-up call or people who have had a wake-up call and need to continue to walk in the new revelation that you have given us, the lessons that we have learned. Would we pursue you and follow you above all things? And this is our prayer, God. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So we're going to go by this verse by verse tonight as we do every night here at the gathering. We're going to start with verse 1. The first part of verse 1, we'll call it 1A. It begins, look, the day is coming, burning like an oven. The first heat wave I ever experienced, I was probably eight or nine years old, and we were at Edison Field, also known as Angels Stadium. We were there, and it was the middle of the summer. We were visiting my grandmother, and she lives in Orange County, or lived in Orange County, and we somehow convinced my mom that it would be a good idea to take us to a day game in the middle of summer, in the middle of a heat wave at Edison Field in Anaheim, where the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim, or whatever, play. You see, the big hurt, Frank Thomas, the legendary first baseman of the Chicago White Sox, was going to be there. They were playing the angels, and I had to be there. So somehow we convinced our mom to take us, and we went. We sat directly in the sun in the outfield in probably the cheapest seats that we could get, and it was extremely uncomfortable. This was before the 1997 renovation, and it was a scorcher. It felt like hell. Not only was I surrounded by angels fans, But secondly, it was extremely, extremely hot. My chair made of plastic and metal, it felt like it was a griddle. And I was sizzling like bacon. 
My brains felt like scrambled eggs. And so between innings, I would rush to the bathroom and I would grab a bunch of paper towels and wet them and I'd paste them all over my body in efforts to try and cool down. But it was to no avail. I was burning like an oven. Well, on this day that Malachi speaks of, the day of the Lord that is coming, it too will be burning like an oven, but for those who are arrogant and doing evil. That's what the continuation of the verse says in 1b. All the arrogant ones and all those doing evil will become straw. Do you know what straw is? Straw is basically a collection of dried stalks of grain. It's the agricultural byproduct of barley, oats, rice, rye, and wheat after the grain and the chaff have been removed. Straw has many different uses, including fuel and livestock bedding and fodder, thatching and basket making. Basket making sounds pretty cool. Thatching sounds pretty cool too, but its main uses, fuel, that means to be burned, and animal bedding, not so much. I used to uh, take care of horses, and when it would rain, I had to throw out straw in all of the corrals in hopes that this would soak up the rainfall that was mixing with the animal excrement, the poop and the pee from the horses, and this would dry up the ground so they wouldn't be standing in mud. They could get abscesses or different like bacterias and fungal infections that could really hurt the horse and even lead to their death. And so we'd spread out this, this straw in hopes that it would suck up the moisture. So basically, straw is used, at least with animals, to soak up their excrement. It's interesting that the prophet Malachi is making a comparison here between straw and the people who are doing Evil. He's essentially announcing that the arrogant ones and those doing evil will be broken down to a substance that's mainly used for burning and soaking up animal excrement. Verse 1c continues, The coming day will burn them, says the Lord of heavenly forces, leaving them neither root nor branch. It will be all torched, burnt up, broken down. And this all describes the day of the Lord in terms of judgment. This is what happens, though, in the kingdom of God. You lift yourself up, you do evil, you're going to get broken down. In the wise words of Johnny Cash, God's going to cut you down. You like that a little lower? I try to get, like, bassy on that. <laughs> down. Down. Verse 2 says, but the sun, I love this. We go from like negative, bad news about these people who are being arrogant and doing evil. But then we have verse 2. But the sun of righteousness will rise on those revering my name. Healing will be in its wings so that you will go forth and jump about like calves in the stall. So it sounds like three different images here are intertwined to describe the restoration that also comes with the day of the Lord in a metaphorical way. So first, we'll, we'll break this apart piece by piece. First, the sun of righteousness will rise on those revering my name. We're talking about perfectly warm sunshine, not too hot, not too cold, 
just right. Like no SPF 30 is needed. No sunscreen needed. You get that Maui Bay bronze without even trying. You've always wanted it, but now you don't have the cancer along with it. So the sun can blister, but the sun can also bless. And its blessing effect is here in view. It brings life. It brings light. It brings warmth. Second, Healing will be in its wings. Well, wait, we were just talking about the sun, the sun of righteousness. The sun is not a bird. The sun does not have wings. Well, Malachi seems to be visualizing the sun rays like the wings of a bird stretching over the earth, kind of like this picture here. It kind of looks like the wings of a bird. Imagine that, though, the sun like a great albatross spreading out its wings and delivering this healing effect on the inhabitants of the earth, healing them and the planet from the devastation of sin. So God will cause the son of the righteousness to rise on those revering his name. Healing will be in its wings, spread out like a bird of some sort. And thirdly, so that you will go forth and jump about like calves in the stall. Now this is the natural response. It's the natural response to being healed. You praise break. You get your hands up, you get your feet dancing like happy little livestock. You cue the edited version of House of Pain's Jump Around and you jump around because It's the proper response. God is good. God has healed. So what are we going to do? We're going to jump around. We're going to celebrate. I mean, God is faithful, and he is just. He does what is right. He does what is truthful. Sometimes we may not like it, but God is good all of the time. I mean, do I need to get Urango back up here and start barking at you guys? God is good. Verse 3 says, You will crush the wicked. They will be like dust beneath the soles of your feet. And in this culture, and even in our culture today, we know that your feet are dirty, especially the bottom of your feet. They're nasty, right? And it's disgraceful to be stepped upon. Well, that's what's happening to the wicked. They will be like dust between, beneath the soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of heavenly forces. So the righteous will stomp the wicked down to dust, to tiny particles of matter easily blown away in the breeze. Verse 4 says, remember, and this is the imperative command form of this verb, zikru, everybody say zikru. Remember, Zikru, the, in, the instruction from Moses, my servant, to whom I gave instruction and rules for all Israel at Horeb, also known as Mount Sinai. On Horeb slash Mount Sinai, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, the essential instructions to the covenant relationship between God and Israel. You know them. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not hook up with someone else's wife or husband. And here Malachi is commanding the listeners to zikru, to remember. But this zikru, this remembering, it, 
It's more than just recalling some information or, or something from your memory. When I was in fourth grade, my dad took all of us, we all piled into the truck, and we drove to Tohone Ranch near Fraser Park for the Battle of Gettysburg. When I was in fourth grade, I basically read everything that I possibly could get my hands on about the Civil War. And here we were, now about to experience a real-life reenactment of Gettysburg. We walked through the camps with all of the tents. There were soldiers dressed in gray and blue. There were horses. There were cannons. It was phenomenal. It was remarkable. I was geeking out completely. And then the battle began, and with it, the sound of rifles and muskets and pistols, the roaring boom of cannons, the clickety-clack of horses rushing all over the field, the spine-tingling cry of the rebel yell. It was phenomenal. And then after the battle was over, there was the tall, skinny man with a mustacheless beard and that tall hat, and he said, four scores and seven years ago. That's not Z Crew, though. As phenomenal as this event proved to be, as memorable as this performance of remembering proved to be, that's not Z Crew. That's not to remember as Malachi and the biblical authors would have us. To remember is not just to recollect. It's not just to reenact, but also to follow all that we have been taught so that we can move into the future as God's people. It would mean not only joining the ranks of the 6th Georgia Infantry for one Saturday a month, but doing it every single day, every single moment of your life. So let's do some table talk. How do you remember and put into practice what you learn from God at church, at Bible study, at personal devotion, etc.? Ready, go. All right, let's bring it back together here. Finish the thought. You know, it's easy to be a Christian for an hour and a half on a Wednesday, an hour and a half on a Sunday, and maybe a couple Bible studies throughout the week, uh, but it's a little bit more challenging to actually live it out every moment of every day, but that's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, and I don't want to be a church that merely recollects and reenacts the gospel but I want to be a church that follows and lives out and lives by the gospel, the good news of God's saving activity throughout all time, space, and eternity. That's what I want to do. I don't know about you guys, but I think that you're here tonight, and that's great. And I think that's a step in the right direction, and we're moving in that direction. We just have to make sure that our lives line up. We've been talking about that, that this whole idea throughout Malachi, does your way of life equal your way of worship? And does your way of worship equal your way of life? And that's something we always have to measure ourselves with, to realize that I need to be the same person in every situation, everywhere I go. 
cannot have these dual or, or, or triality to our, our personhoods. Let's continue with verse 5. It begins, look, or in Hebrew, hine, behold, look, check it out. See, I am sending Elijah, the prophet, to you before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives. Elijah, one of my favorite characters of the Bible, he's a great prophet of the Old Testament, early great prophet of Israel in the 9th century B.C. He was taken up to heaven by a chariot of fire, and no mention is ever made of his death. Why? Because he didn't die. He went up in the chariot of fire. God and I have worked that out. That's the way I plan to go. (laughs) So Malachi says that Elijah will be sent to the people of Israel before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives. Well, when will that be? When will that take place? What will that look like? Well, Jesus said it already happened. Jesus identified John the baptizer. Remember, he's not a Baptist, but he baptized people. He wasn't Episcopalian or Lutheran. He was just John who would baptize people. Commonly referred to as John the Baptist. I call him John the baptizer. He is, as Jesus identifies him, as Elijah. Because he came in the spirit and power of his prototype, Elijah. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 17, 12 through 14. In fact, I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they didn't know him. But they did to him whatever they wanted in the same way the human one, that is the son of man, is also going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples realized he was telling them about John the Baptist. So Elijah was supposed to come before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives, and Jesus says he came as John the baptizer. So if that's true, verse 5 says, look, I am sending Elijah, the prophet, to you. That would be John the baptizer before the great and terrifying day of the Lord arrives. But what's the great and terrifying day of the Lord? Is it Jesus' first coming Is it Jesus' crucifixion or his resurrection or is it his second coming? I don't know. But all these events are wake-up calls. Wake-up calls that should prompt us to get into right relationship with God. A dear friend and Old Testament professor of mine from Cal Lutheran named Joseph Everson, he did his whole entire dissertation on the day of the Lord theology. And as I was thumbing through his textbook of a dissertation, that's what you write when you go to get your PhD, uh, I remember how he told me the story of when he had a day of the Lord experience, when he was nearly decapitated while riding a bus in Germany. It proved to be a great and terrifying day of the Lord for him a day where he realized things have to change. I need to get right with God. I need to get closer to him. Well, verse 6 says this, Turn the hearts of the parents to the children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. 
In light of this soon coming day of the Lord, have the parents love their children and have the children love their parents. It's about the reconciliation that needs to happen with these Jewish families in this post-exilic, this after-exile community as they've returned from Babylon. As they have rebuilt the temple and the walls of Jerusalem, it's time to rebuild their families and their relationship with God. Otherwise, God says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. If the wicked repent and turn back to God, this purifying judgment that that we saw threatened in verses 1 through 3 about the straw being burned up and people being crushed like dust, it will all be unnecessary. We won't have to go through that. But if not, if they don't repent, God says, I will come and strike the land with a curse. And that's how Malachi ends. That's how the entire Old Testament ends. With a warning and a hope for a new day dawning. I got a phone call uh, last Monday, last Sunday, actually, from a lady who used to go to Journey the Church. She had to move away for a job, and she's been moving all over the country, but we've been staying in contact. She always asks, what's a good church I should go to? I'm here in Colorado. What's a good church I should go to here? I'm in Northern California. What's a good church? But she, she called me and told me, my niece is in really bad shape. Can you come tomorrow and pray with us? She's in the ICU. I said, yeah, sure, I'll be there. So I go the next day, and I, I meet them all at, at St. John's in Camarillo at the, the hospital there, and um, I walk into just the, the entrance area of the hospital, and I see uh, her name is Sherry, and I see her, and I see a, a couple other people, family members, and I'm trying to find out what is wrong with your niece. The niece's name is Ronnie, and they said, well, she's got pneumonia. I'm like, okay, yeah, I know pneumonia is pretty serious, but usually it's like not I don't know. Yeah, people die from pneumonia. I get that. But I was like, this must be really serious. Well, the family dynamics were pretty interesting going on. It was pretty wild to see. We prayed for the family there, and a couple people went because she was in quarantine. And I stayed behind with Sherry, and I said, okay, what's the real story? Yeah, she's got pneumonia, but also she's, she's got this whole cocktail of drugs going on through her system. So she's detoxing. She was found unconscious. Uh, Someone just basically dropped her off at the hospital. She was living in a meth lab, all of this stuff. And I'm like, okay. So I go in, and we have to suit up and everything. And uh, wearing mask and gloves, she has MRSA. And it's airborne. And that's really bad. You don't want to get MRSA. And so we go, and we pray for her. And she looks like she's in really, really bad shape. We go. There's bells and whistles, alarms going off. And she's, like, convulsing there. We pray for her for, I mean, two minutes, and then we got we to gotta leave. I come two days later, and we pray, and we spend some more time, and it seems like she's doing a little bit better, but they say that it's not looking good. There's this whole, like, tub of stuff, of all of the gunk that's inside of her. She's intubated. She's sedated. She's not even really there. I come on a Friday, I think it was, and I brought Dustin along. They, they asked, well, can you, like, baptize her? I'm like, no, I can't really baptize her. That's, like, has to be, like, your choice. But I can anoint her. 
I can do that. We've got some olive oil. We can anoint her and pray for her because that's what you would do for weary travelers in the Old Testament. In the ancient world, you would anoint their head with oil. And uh, we went and suited up and anointed her with oil and prayed for her. And, and while we were praying, her son was there, 17-year-old. I'm talking to him. I'm like, man, there's no 17-year-old should have to go through with this. We're praying for her. And I'm just feeling like this immense like presence of God and just like stuff like boom, going out. And I get a call uh, earlier this week, and uh, Sherry said they, uh, they took Ronnie off of life support. And uh, I was like, wow, that's pretty heavy. And she's like, yeah, well, she's doing a lot better. <laughs> so they took her off life support. I'm like, oh, okay, thanks for telling me that. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to try and, and, and get there. I wasn't able to go visit her yesterday, but I go today, and, man, I knew that she wasn't, uh, have that, like, breathing tube and all of that stuff, and I'm walking up, and I see, like, some of the family in the parking lot, and I just come at, like, a random time, and they're talking to me, and they're saying, yeah, she's doing so much better, she remembers you, and and how you and Dustin came and prayed for her, anointed her, all this stuff, and she's doing so much better. She's talking, she's eating, and I'm like blown away. And I said, okay, well, how about like the MRSA? Tell me about the, the MRSA. How's that situation? Is it, she said, well, they did two tests, and there's no MRSA. It went airborne and went internal, and then it, it's gone. And a couple of days ago, when Dustin and I last went into the hospital, they said, the doctors were like, we can't do anything else. She needs a heart valve replacement, but the MRSA and all of this stuff is, we can't do anything. Like, we've done all we can. So we're like, all right, well, we believe that God can do more. And he did. I go up to the room today, and there she is, like, lying there in the hospital bed, saying, what's up? How are you? And as we're talking, we're talking about, hey, this is literally a, a miracle going on. And I hear them say, yeah, 15. And I'm like, what are you talking about, 15? And they're like, yeah, that's, that was, they said she had a 15% chance of living. Uh, wow. So she's got a long road ahead of her still, but she's in this process of healing. And I've seen this whole family healed in the process. Mom and daughter were not talking Son and, da- and mom were not, had nothing to do with each other. Now everybody's just hanging out in this hospital room. It's incredible. And they're like thanking me like it's me who's done something. I'm like, no, 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 give the glory to God. And they are, we, we are giving the glory to God, but we want to give the glory to you too. I'm like, no, I'll give it to God. But I also had to talk to her about some stuff. And I just shared with her, I'm like, hey, like I am so stoked and I didn't want to be like, all right, let's talk about all the issues and all the things that need to change because you got this because of dirty needles. I'm not going to like bring that up right now at this point. So basically what I said was, I am excited for the change that, that we're going to see happen in your life. And I know, and she's like, I give all the glory to God. I'm thankful for him, all of this stuff. But don't continue down this course. 
May this be a day of the Lord for you. May this be a wake-up call for you. May this be a moment of triumph for you and a new day of looking forward to the dawn that awaits. I can't wait to see the change in your life. And I can't wait to see the change that's happening in this community, in the lives of people here. So let's allow God to do his work. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the wake-up calls you give us. Sometimes they can be absolutely terrifying. But Lord, we know you are good and you are loving and you have a plan for our lives. And we ask to be faithful to you throughout all the struggles that we go through. We know you never leave us. You are beside us. You're before us. You're behind us. You're working through us to bring us to fruition, to make us clean and whole and right with you. I pray, God, that these wake-up calls would bring us closer to you, that we would remember you and live out the life that you have for us with a single focus of loving you and loving people. We pray these things in Jesus' name and give you all the glory and all the honor and all the praise. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Thank you so much for being here tonight. We'll see you on Sunday.